Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It's hard to believe we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. You're telling me, producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a lot of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchase is made through our links. Give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. We covered a lot of great movies that were adapted from other material in season 10. Our originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals is where listeners can purchase the source material behind all our adapted film discussions. It helps support the show at no extra cost when you buy through our links. In our foreign language Best Picture nominees series, we looked at several adaptations, including Z, The Postman Il Postino, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and Letters from Iwo Jima. We hit the high seas with In the Heart of the Sea from Nathaniel Philbrick's nonfiction book for our Aquatic Killers series. Eh, definitely a weaker entry in that series. I bet the book is better. Oh, me too. Member bonus episodes featured adaptations like Gone Girl, The Russia House, Ivanhoe, The Hot Rock, The Big Heat, and Naked Lunch. Oliver Stone brought not just original stories, but also adaptations like Conan the Barbarian, Scarface, Year of the Dragon, Eight Million Ways to Die, Talk Radio, and Born on the Fourth of July. Mary Heron's disturbingly insightful American Psycho was adapted from the Brett Easton Ellis book. You like Huey Lewis in the news? Oh my God, it even has a watermark. And of course, more Stephen King with The Mist, The Green Mile, and The Shawshank Redemption for our King a la Darabont series. Find links to all of these books and more adapted films on our Originals page. That's thenextreel.com slash originals. Every purchase supports our show. Get the full list of books that we've talked about and start your next read today at thenextreel.com slash originals. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Roma is over. It's time to clean the dog poop. Andy, when you're finished with your paramilitary uh, training operation, and you're ready to post your pictures on social media, where would you recommend you go first to get your movie fix? People absolutely should go check out Instagram.com slash The Next Reel. Follow us on Instagram. We're always posting movie posts related to everything we're doing on this show and all of our other shows. Uh, it's just a fun place to kind of continue you know, continue exploring film and, and each of these films that we're talking about on this show and all of the other shows. You keep it nice and tight. 
I was ready to go in to spiral off into a paramilitary story, but you just did that really, really well. You're really, if anybody, if there's anything to say about Andy Nelson, it's, he keeps his Instagram plugs tight. <laughs> and then once they've done that, they should head over to uh, iTunes or their, whatever their podcatcher of choice is, and they should leave us a, a kind rating and or review. Uh, it always helps other people uh, find the show. Roma, Andy, this was a hot thing in 2018. It was a movie, that an Alfonso Cuaron film that hit straight to Netflix. And I don't know if you remember, there was controversy about where to see this movie and if you were going to be uh, served by it watching it on your phone. That was the big joke. All of the critics piled on. And so we saw the movie on Netflix. And uh, now it's been two years and I just watched it again. And I'm so curious now what your thoughts are on your experience watching this movie. Was it OK? Did you make it through on the small screen? I, I did. I didn't watch it on the smallest of screens. I, <laughs> you know, on your phone, did, in picture, I, in a picture, or on my, or on an Apple Watch or something. <laughs> right. Watching, how small right. can I get this and still have the story uh, hit me? I uh, so I, you know, I just watched it on the same TV I watched it on the first time, and it was fine. I mean, this is honestly, I mean, it's a beautiful, beautiful black and white film. I really do feel that this would be a story, just the way that the story kind of unfolds slowly, and it's just something that. I think it it slowly hits you with with kind of just the art on screen and what is happening. I feel that this would be one that uh, I wish wish I could have seen it on the big screen. I know there were some screenings in the you know the major cities that require uh, play in order to be considered for Oscars and all that. Um, I, I kind of wish that I would have had the chance to see it because I, watching it again this time without I, I think last time I watched it it was like a race for me to watch it before the Oscars started like I was yeah, trying to right. get it done before and so it was like literally I finished it minutes before the Oscars started so it was a little bit of a panic watch <laughs> whereas this time yeah. it was a bit more leisurely and honestly I really was able to just get into it get into the pace of it really allow it to wash over me and I was completely taken by the film and it just it hit me in all the right ways I really connected with the characters and the story and the way everything plays out and I mean there were a few times where I was getting choked up I mean it really had a much more emotional impact on me this time I just I found it to be incredible Incredibly, incredibly powerful. Well, I can't wait to hear why that was for you. First, we have to settle in on whether or not anybody else watched the wrong Roma. It would be, well, it's possible. <laughs> Hopefully, if you're following along with the series chronologically, you would have figured it out that it's not the 1972 Fellini version. Nor, no. nor is it the 2004 version that was made in Argentina. Nor no. is this film a remake of either of those movies. So the, <laughs> right. Right, we need to clear the decks. Right, right. <laughs> Although apparently the one from Argentina is quite good. And, uh, you know, I, who knows? I don't know enough about either of those other Romas. Uh, but yes, just to make sure, this is Alfonso Cuaron's 2018 Roma that we are, in fact, talking about. All right. So so where does where does this Roma uh, fit in with our overall series on uh, our, our foreign language film? series boy we are uh right toward the end this is the penultimate film in the series and it is the 10th of 11 films that were uh foreign language films nominated for the best picture oscar uh and i mean we hit this kind of stride from 2000 to now where it's been happening a lot more uh, regularly. I mean, still, it's not a ton. I mean, five times over 20 years, it's not huge. But I'd say it's better than from 1937 to 2000, where you had the other five. Time does what it does, Andy. Uh, you want to talk about the directors and where this fits? Well, I did think it was interesting. This is just a a note that I think is worth looking at. When it comes to having your film nominated for a best picture when it's a foreign language film, I do find it interesting that we have certainly hit a stretch where it helps if you are a filmmaker who is willing and has actually gone ahead and made films, um, not just in foreign languages, but also in English. I think the first, I mean, Costa Gavras had done that, but not until after he had made Z. I mean, you know, Missing is the the big, obvious, successful film that he made that um, was much later, but it was it was a big success. And then Michael Radford, of course, who uh, was the director of uh, The Postman, Il Postino, 
Ang Lee, Clint Eastwood, Michael Haneke, although I think he did his English remake afterward, Alfonso Cuaron, of course, and Bong Joon-ho. It's just interesting that we're hitting this place where I, I guess I don't think that... I don't know. I don't know if the filmmaker has, quote, a better shot of having a nominated or film nominated for Best Picture. But I do think that it also speaks to just the nature of cinema that these filmmakers who are doing this are showing that these their stories can be universal. They don't necessarily need to be pinned to a particular part of the world. They are stories that can uh, touch people in uh, different places all over the world in and because I think of what they're saying. And so I, I think that that's an interesting element that we're certainly starting to note at this point. Um, but it does make me wonder if uh, foreign language filmmakers um, want a better shot if they try making a film in English first. I have an alternate hypothesis, which may be more simple, although I agree with everything you just said. The uh, Academy Awards are an English language award. And the fact that, you know, we have these filmmakers who have some established notoriety before they make this big, successful film uh, in the uh, English language world, um, I think just makes it that much more likely that they will be noticed by the English language filmmaking world and the and the English language award uh, sort of North America mechanical film uh film industry and so i I think it may just be people have a chance to know them first uh that's that's got to be something i know that's the case with someone like bong joon ho right i mean that just sure that that's um well having snowpiercer definitely got him uh made a name for him a little bit more over here in the states than it had before and just to be clear i'm in no way saying hey you know, we're we're so closed off that you have to work in English if you want us to notice you. No, that's not that. That's correlation <laughs> that's not, causation. That's not what yeah, we're talking about. No, no way what we're saying. No, I no. absolutely love watching these foreign films, but it is the Oscars and that's what we're talking about. But yeah, if you're going to say like, you know, Alfonso Cuaron gets noted for Roma, would he have been noted for Roma had he not had gravity? I think there is a strong case to be made for that. People were aware of this movie and the relationship with Netflix and what he was doing in the black and white, and it got noticed because of his notoriety from Gravity. I, I just believe it. He's worked in English long enough to have a following, an English language following. Some, some, maybe something to that. Who knows? So we're talking about uh, the Roma. The Roma is a year in the life. Uh, it, it uses everyday life as dramatic fuel. It's set in the uh, 70s, uh, early 70s. It is uh, the story of a woman working as a, a domestic uh, in the home of a doctor and his wife and their uh, many children in uh, Mexico City. And Specifically, the Colonia Roma neighborhood, hence yes. the title of the film. Yes. The the take on. So the first time I watched this movie, I was so moved by the story and the performance of of the of, of Cleo, the actress Alicia Paricio, uh, who is just I, I mean, she's just really um, I found her super engaging. And I just I, I really wanted to, to know her, <laughs> you know, and mm-hmm. and and like be able to share her share with her something, you know, like I felt like that was a, a very personal um, connection that I, I like I felt like maybe we were closer than we were just having watched her on screen. Um, and her experience in this home and the way it was sort of unveiled or revealed by this incredibly astute camera, um, I-, I thought the everyday life drama was incredibly appealing and was super attracted to that. Um, and the second viewing, I was I found myself less intrigued by that. And, and I think to your point, um, when I watched the film the first time, I felt like that experience of rushing to to make sure I had it, the box checked going into the Oscars. And this time I was that much more moved by the construction of every single frame on screen. It, uh, it was uh, the the work of art. Like I wanted, we do this thing where we we run stills of the movie for our promotional stuff. I'm as you know. I don't know if that's if that's okay, but we do it anyway. And so we have the we have these stills. I'm looking at the stills that run through this automated process, and I'm like, I want to frame every single one of those. I want every single one of these black and white uh, portraits hanging on my wall because it is so expert. Even just a camera panning 
from left to right across an empty apartment is made somehow inspirational uh, in his hands. That goes to the art of Quaron, yeah. who, yeah. I, I mean, it's been clear in his previous films. The, the work that he did in Gravity, the work that he did in Children of Men, he really started, uh, well, I, and I would argue even his earlier films. I, I think it's it's become very clear in how he started attaching to the camera and how he could use his tools. And we talk about this a lot with a lot of the directors. They know how to use the tools that they have, the cinematic tools, in order to craft a story that is most ideal for its telling. And I think that that's something that that is a very... Um, it's a sign I, I, you know, the auteur theory is what it is, but I do think there's a little something to that when it is a craftsman who knows how to use the tools so well that it, it almost goes beyond all of the other departments that are absolutely integral in bringing the vision to life. I still think that when their vision comes through, it is the sign of an auteur. And I think that Quaron is one. I think the way that he chooses to uh, work with all of the other craftsmen that that he uh, brings on to the projects just so perfectly distill what it is that he's trying to do so that he is able to create these magnificent black and white uh, images that we just very slowly kind of pan around in this world and really get a sense of space, a sense of memory, a sense of place, a sense of just kind of life and the the different lives intersecting all throughout the story. I mean, it's just, I mean, it really does evoke um, the period in a way that, uh, I mean, I, I, would, I would say it probably still would if it had been in color and it, if it had been just a period film, you know, like Zodiac mm-hmm. or something like that. But I think the way that he chooses to do it in black and white, it also ends up kind of giving you this feel that you're looking into these black and white photos, plus the way that it just pans all the time. It, I feel like I'm in old black and white photos, like looking at these memories. I, I just think that it was really cleverly thought about and packaged in order to give it that sense. Uh, well, you talk about Children of Men and what he did with Children of Men and the look of that film. And to me, that that made this sort of post-apocalyptic kind of science fiction, um, it made very small relationships look very big, right? You look at Gravity, where he makes very big things look even bigger. Uh, That is his uh, stock and trade, is taking what you see and and what you are imagining and making it look gigantic uh this film he brings you into these these this home right into this family's life which is the smallest sort of most intimate molecule uh, that we have of our of our culture right going into inside these relationships but he's shooting it on this great big you know 65 millimeter you know giant format um you know a, a I'm I'm sort of surprised he didn't just take an IMAX camera into this little apartment just to see what would happen. Um, it is uh, it, it, the result of that is something that looks very modern, right? You you wouldn't be entirely off base to think to to mistake the setting of this film, the period of this film, because it looks so crisp and clear. It hasn't been aged. It hasn't been, um, you know, the shooting in black and white is, you know, you could you could imagine it, you know, have being shot, you know, and set today and shot in black and white. It looks so crisp, so clean uh, and and so perfect. And I love what he he says about this. So he says, you know, I, I shot this intentionally. I shot this with big wide lenses. I shot it with big format because I don't want a film that looks vintage or old. I want to do a modern film that l- allows us to look into the past. And I think that's a really beautifully kind of touching way to introduce us using the camera to their lives. And, uh, you know, something that I that struck me that he said is he said, we're doing Ansel Adams. And Mm -hmm. I think that was the perfect distillation of everything the way that I mean, it's spectacular the way that he thought about everything, not just on set and how they were moving the camera and kind of the format and shooting in color uh, with the intention of of dropping the color out to go black and white, which meant a lot of planning as far as the colors and everything. But also, the way that he 
acknowledged what he needed to do in order to get what he wanted once he got into post. The mm-hmm. way that he had to, by shooting that big format, he had to have a lot of extra lights to really bring uh, all that the level up because of the size of the camera and the lenses he wanted to use. It also allowed for a much greater depth of field. And by doing that, that meant more stuff from the front all the way through the back that they had to light. And then just the complexities of saying, okay, well, we want to light for the actors in this house which is going to blow out the window. So they would shoot the scene, but then they would also shoot a bunch of different exposure plates where they would then have a plate exposing the window and then go in digitally and replace all that detail from the window in the shot of the actors so that they could have everything, kind of a much greater um, sense of exposure across the across the spectrum in the images. And just all the digital replacements that they were doing constantly. I mean, he was not afraid of having lights in the shot that would get digitally replaced just so he could hit lights in certain areas it's just it's just amazing the stuff that that he would do in order to kind of very meticulously craft the uh, the end result kind of this this perfect representation of these memories that he had as a kid i think the opening shot the opening pan where we see uh cleo kind of and, and her compatriot there working together and kind of picking up laundry and doing that stuff the the way the camera works on planes right it spends most of its time our camera spends is is panning if there's motion it's panning left to right right to left mostly left to right and it and it uses this movement of the camera to reveal new things in the shot well you don't have to watch very far into this movie to to see that at work and and sort of experience how extraordinary it is after the extended opening kind of credit you know shot of pavement um we we get into the house and we see this we see the camera kind of revealing all the rooms and that is exactly where all of the technical work that you're talking about comes into play there are so many rooms at so many different (laughs) levels of depth that we have to be able to see every single detail of it is extraordinary and my mind was sort of just bending at how he was able to architect the entirety of the scene at such a gigantic scale to be able to move the camera anywhere in it and have exactly the the same level of sort of resolution and high dynamic range. I mean, we use that that term generally. It's used in sort of, uh, you know, in, in color work and color photography to bring out uh, both luminance and saturation data of, of from different um, exposure levels. And in this case, you know, merging black and white exposures, um, you know, it's the the same it's it's the same tool but used in an incredible fashion here and i just have to uh, you you were i know not intentionally but a little dismissive of that very first shot of the of the ground of the tile yeah. as the water is getting washed over it but i think that that was such a an incredible kind of representation of the film to a certain extent we're staring at the ground like this is this is the place this is the home this is the yeah. earth that these people live on but as the water as cleo is mopping and everything kind of gets kind of pushed across the tile in front of us suddenly we're revealed with this reflection of the the top of this courtyard that we're in and you can see the sky above and now you have this world that's outside of it but it's kind of just this kind of shaky reflection and then you see the plane fly over and i just i was like what an amazing way to kind of define this world of these people you know here they are living their lives and there's so much other stuff going on outside them there's so many places that they're just not a part of but here they are living their life. And I think that is played out so often throughout the film, too. Like, you know, we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about like the riots and just the parades and everything else going on in politics. There's so much going on, but it's we're focused on this world, on this family. I found it an incredible way to kind of start the film. Well, I do, too. And, and you're right. I was unintentionally dismissive about it. But it uh, for me, it is uh, that opening sequence. It's weird to think about an opening sequence so far into the movie. But when uh, as they're the husband and wife, as they're relationship is falling apart and the the wife comes in and says you know i told you to clean up the dog poop right the dog poop becomes this constant refrain in the movie and uh the his camera really shows a lot of detail in the dog poop the close-ups of the dog poop but we see 
we see first in this opening credit scene, we see her washing the pavement. And then later we see from the outside perspective of her washing the pavement from sort of, I think, perspective of largely the garage door, the sidewalk. We get to see her pouring that water on the pavement and scrubbing it with the broom and washing it away. And that just, to me, that just brings it all back to the experience of living in this house. The planes are everywhere. And I, I know hearing Quaron talk about it, there is both the the um the the fact that they had to adapt to the fact that they're working you know uh, in Mexico City and they're having to shoot all their natural sound at night because it was quieter and they could isolate footsteps and stuff while during the day there are always planes flying over <laughs> their head and so um he in, in the interviews that I watched with him he was reticent to actually talk about what the planes mean to him uh and the way he says it I don't want to take away meaning from somebody else uh to me that opened opening plane is an incredibly powerful symbol of escape right of of like what it means to be away from the the uh, sort of entrapments of this family and this home and as you're looking at it almost everyone wants to get out of this home for their own reasons at some level the husband actually just plum leaves he goes to he, go, right. he just leaves uh goes off to stay with his mistress <laughs> yeah right and so um so i i think that uh it, it's a really interesting symbol that i i think he reverse engineered as something that's sort of a powerful avatar for the story it's very smart and it's it's just an interesting way to kind of connect that with this idea of this other out there like the kids bring up several times oh can we go to disneyland like yeah there are places out there that are yes. only kind of in their imagination and we do get out a couple times with them but mm -hmm. it's it's interesting to see like when we do get out kind of like what uh what things end up happening because never never do they end up just completely happy they're they're always kind of like rough well departures. isn't that a, a symbol too of its own like of, of the film everyday life as its own drama right i think that's a yeah that is one of the great gifts of this movie is a reminder that the life that you are living is, you know, is fuel for uh, for uh, weird other people's entertainment. That sounds horrible. Uh, <laughs> but there is there's drama in everything that we do. And I think that that is, um, you know, that is one of the things that this year in the life sort of expose of Clio uh, illuminates for me, uh, you know, when you yeah. put a giant format camera on it. Well, and it ends up being, you know, to a certain extent, the grass is always greener, even in black and white, right? It's yes, they they are always imagining these these ima these wonderful things, but but when they are actually there, it's like, okay, now there's a fire in the woods, you know, right. you know, uh, Fermin tells her to to leave, and uh, not the, great, you know, Fermin, not close great, to drowning, you know. There's yeah. there's a lot of different things that happen when they. Uh, uh, that aren't perfect that show it's it's there's life is hard everywhere so the big high points of the everyday living drama uh here i mean I've, the, the, at its very highest you see this from the very beginning is this idea of work and privilege right she is a servant working for a family of privilege and uh, it is unveiled over the course of this movie that um you know neither side has uh, a, a huge benefit here right uh, as the family sort of starts to to dissolve in terms of the husband and wife and she's the the wife is trying to figure out how to keep the rest of life together uh, and the stress and anxiety that comes with that and at the same time cleo gets pregnant by a yeah. ruffian and has to deal with just sort of like young love and then pregnancy and then that pregnancy kind of falling apart as she as she uh, gives birth to the baby uh, who's already uh, dead and stillborn yeah stillborn uh, birth which is uh one of those quaron things we're just going to show the birth and the baby and you just can't i mean it it is presented in such an exuberant um uh, visual manner that you can't help but feel like you're in the room with these doctors and with Cleo as they're as they're explaining performing doing the things that need to be done um for this stillborn so i i think you know i i'm looking at this as this uh, sort of overall package of the pains that we all live through as a great sort of leveling factor uh, that that he is giving us well, and what's really powerful about that, because, I mean, yeah, the scene in the hospital is just devastating. It was really hard for me to watch this time. And 
I just found found it to be a perfect kind of example of what we were just talking about. This is happening while this major riot is happening in the streets of Mexico. Well, yeah, um, there was it was uh, June tenth, nineteen seventy one. Alconazo is what uh, Cuaron said it was. It was a, a failed attempt at of the citizens of reclaiming their democracy from their uh, their government, and the government had hired these these kind of these uh, militant groups like this martial arts group that Fermin is training with to be kind of the ruffians kind of beating up these students and other people who are protesting. And we have a horrific scene. Well, it's just, I mean, I, I think it plays out really interestingly because you have, here they are, Grandma and Cleo going shopping for a crib only to have these riots break out. And they're watching from the store window. And it was just such an interesting way to kind of separate all of that until it breaks into the shop. And then somebody gets gunned down. One of these students gets gunned down and you have a gun in the foreground. And you know it's pointing at at uh, Cleo. Cleo because yeah. you can tell you know the position of everything. And then the camera moves and reveals it's Fermin who is holding the gun at her. And it's like holy cow, wow, that just that took a turn I wasn't expecting. It was heartbreaking. And uh, but then you go into the whole thing with her uh, water breaking, and and it's just like all of a sudden this mega story that's happening of this actual riot that had happened in Mexico that is affecting everybody in the country narrows down so quickly to the story of Cleo and this uh, and this uh, this pregnancy and the the birth that she's uh, suddenly having to uh, go into as, as she's delivering it was it was a really fascinating shift that was just so emotional and had so many levels going on and it just it was really masterfully put together talk talk about your experience did you know that this was an actual event the first time you saw the movie? I knew that there had been a lot of events in a lot of South American countries. Yeah. I took a course in college about, um, uh, you know, kind of conflict through South America, Latin America, really, um, through uh, kind of the different years. And we studied a lot of countries. And I know we studied Mexico, so I'm sure we studied um, some specifics about what had happened in that country, I didn't remember specific incidents. This wasn't an incident that I remembered. I knew there were these issues that had gone on. So when I saw the riot happening, um, I, I knew, you know, plus we had seen some other things with with kind of yeah, people yeah. talking and protesting and stuff where it had been brought up. So I, I knew that this was going on. I just didn't have all the specifics with me. Well, and that's what I'm, I'm curious about, because I, I, you know, I I never took a class in college like a big smarty, but uh, I did know that there is there has been conflict <laughs> through the 70s in, in uh, Central and South America. Um, and uh, so this idea that something like this happened was not, you know, that didn't seem terribly foreign to me. Learning now that he comes at this sequence with great intentionality right he he said this is an actual event and it is told and it was practiced through documented reports of what happened on this day and i it was important to me to make sure that this actual event happens where the fictional story reaches the true story right i wanted yeah. these characters to reach reality at some point and i'm curious what you make of that like does knowing that mean something more to you now on second viewing? Well, it's interesting. And I suppose that I have to look at this as this is a film about memory. And this is a film that is really Cuaron's memory of his childhood, of his nanny, uh, their their own uh, house servant who had kind of taken care of him as a kid. Um, but he also grew up with these various events. And he talked about how he very specifically remembered this particular event because he was a kid and in school. And he thought as a kid in school, am I going to be attacked because I'm going to school, you know, without realizing kind of the different age difference of who is it, which kids were getting attacked, which students were getting attacked. But it was something very um, memorable for him. And he very specifically wanted to shoot in this particular street in that particular store, which he kind of retrofitted to the time because it was on this street where this happened with a furniture store on the second floor. And he remembered the photos at the time of the people in the furniture store looking out the windows watching what was happening below. And he was so curious about those people. So I think that he, I, I guess I struggle because I'm like, clearly he wanted to this film, he was taking so many of his childhood memories and bringing them into the way that the story was told. So I don't know if I, I don't know if I see anything larger than that, other than this was a, an obvious 
turning point in his own life, just the way that things were going in Mexico, that he felt it was very important to talk about because it was something that clearly had affected him. Well, it it, it demonstrated explicitly. I mean, perfectly. It's just uh, it, it is an incredible sort of um, setting for our third act where we see not just Mexico City falling apart right in front of us. We see her life as a future mother falling apart right in front of us. And uh, we see their life as a family having just sort of falling apart right in front of us. And uh, all of those things that the energy of the film at that point, um, you know, is is um, it's deceiving how we get there from such a quiet open. I think that's that's real artful filmmaking to get us from that point to here. It really is. I mean, it's it's very um, amazing how he kind of crafted that. I would argue it's the end of the second act. It's really kind of you know everybody hits this low point and it yeah, leads yeah, to yeah, it, yeah, it right. ends with the 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 stillbirth um, of of Cleo's daughter, which is uh, horrific. And then it takes us into kind of a what seems like a quieter respite for the third act, which I think is uh, really interesting. And and the way that all of that unfolds, I find to be really powerful because it's it reveals Cleo's feelings about being saddled with motherhood in when she wasn't ready for it with mm-hmm. a man who had no interest not only no interest in being a father or anything but a violent man who very specifically told her to you know uh, f off or i will beat you and mm-hmm. her and the little thing that you claim is mine like he's just a horrible horrible person uh and so you you have this sense of her being this caregiver for this family afraid of being a caregiver for her own family but you go out of kind of the the big picture like we end the second act in like this big picture of what's going on in mexico and in the third act it it goes back to just a very specific instant with just the family and kind of the resolution of of the uh divorce with mom and dad but also uh cleo's own feelings about kids and how in a strange way she's much more comfortable being a caregiver for someone else's kids than actually the whole idea of having her own kid. Yeah. Absolutely. And we get to we get to her you know exhibiting her experience of motherhood in that incredible like tracking shot of her bringing the child out under the bridge on the water and running back and forth into the waves. Uh, and it is just mesmerizing. Truly, truly spectacular filmmaking. And just the way that they, they captured that just, I, I, it was just, I, you feel like you're there. You really do. You're like right in the middle of it as you're watching all of this unfold as she's running back into the water, trying to rescue these two kids who got too far and are uh, getting pulled under and uh, she rescues them and gets them back. But it's like, you're following her. Like it starts with them on the beach saying goodbye to mom the two kids go out, she takes the one back. And uh, just the, the way that all of this is just one magnificent, one magnificent shot. It just was, it was stunning to watch again. And uh, it, it's just one that, I mean, it blew me away the first time and it blew me away again. Just the way that he crafted that really uh, puts you right in the heart of everything going on right there. You want to, do you want to do a cinematic, a cinematrics recap? We started this conversation last week. We talked about how we were going to talk about it again this week. I'm pretty sure we don't have ex- specifics on Roma, but we have things to yeah. say. I, unfortunately, we don't. I was really hoping that um, that they had done some. Um, Gravity had, you know, very long average shot length. And I feel like this one probably equals, if not bests that because some of these shots, I mean, just the first shot alone, we're staring at the tile and the water for four minutes before it tilts up to show us uh, Cleo doing any work. It just like there's a lot of length, uh, deliberate length in the way that these shots are crafted. So I just I, I feel that if if there was an average shot length, it would be uh, pretty high for this one. Yeah. I, you know, I, once again, I just found, found this article and it's one of myriad articles that say the same thing where, uh, critics say this film deserves a big screen screen treatment. And, uh, it's a shame. I tell you a crying shame that you can't see it on a big screen. And in this case, 
you know, Ted uh, Sarandos, co-CEO of Netflix, is making the case that this mo- a great movie is a great movie anywhere you see it, which, of course, is what he's going to say. Also, I happen to like that perspective. But what's your what's your final thought on this film? I watched it at home on my screen. It is a screen, I would argue, of some, I, I recognize of some privilege. It's a pretty big screen. And so watching it felt like I was in a close enough to a theater experience. It felt really great. And, you know, I didn't watch it on my phone at length, but I watched a little bit of it on my phone and it was great there too. Um, so I don't know. Feels like much ado about nothing to me. Well, I, I would argue it's not much to do about nothing, but I do think that there is something very powerful about the theatrical experience. You're in a closed room with incredible sound, generally, with a great, huge screen, and you're in the dark. You're you're doing nothing but sitting there watching the movie. Well, caveat, most people <laughs> are sitting there <laughs> just watching uh and so the, the caveat is there there may be distractions in there but regardless there it's it's hard to beat that experience i do think that you know sarandos does have something to the point that you know there's a lot of movies that you're just never going to get a chance to see a lot of great great movies you're never going to get a chance to see on the big screen and i mean yeah i would love to live in la or new york or another city that had uh, a, a great cinema that was always going back and and showing old films that that I could go see in 35 or whatever. It's not the case for most people in the world. And that's something that I do really, if, if anything would get me to move to LA, it would be that. It would be just to have the opportunity to have those great theaters around where I could go see older movies on the big screen the way that they were intended. I just, I love the idea of that. Unfortunately, I don't get that. And I don't get to see a lot of things on the big screen. I've seen a lot of really amazing films for the first time on the small screen because they just, I've never had the opportunity outside of that. Jaws, I've never seen that on the big screen. Uh, But I love it. I love watching the movie. I love the experience of it. And so I think that, I mean, I love watching movies and I think as long as it's something that I'm going to, you know, give my attention to in whatever size the screen happens to be, personally, I don't like the idea of watching it on my phone. I'd rather, I mean, the laptop, I think, is probably the smallest I'd go. But I I think as long as you're really into it and you're paying attention, you're giving it the attention that it's due to absorb the story and the content as to what the director is putting out, um, then I, I don't know if it matters as much. You're still getting the experience. I would suggest that this movie is a real uh, high watermark for films that look great on a phone. And I think the idea or I, I think the technology that he used to make the movie and to make it for Netflix and to shoot large format and to uh, deliver such an incredibly crisp image, it looks great at all sizes, right? It really does. You can get pretty small and see an awful lot out of this movie. Uh, to your point, of course, I I absolutely applaud people who pay attention to the movie the entire way through. And I think that it is it it should not be tolerated, <laughs> the kind of distractions that you have during movies. But I don't think that that necessarily says that that um, that that we can't be, um, you know, a little bit more screen welcoming in our arguments. And some of the critics, the critic reviews and interviews are so off. They're just off. I, you know, oh, I feel so sorry for them. All those people who have to watch this movie on their computers didn't have the privilege of being able to see it in a big screen. It's a it's a crime of art. Um, these are the kinds of things that they're saying. And this is a great movie and it deserves to be seen however you can see it. It's a lovely expose and it'll teach you a little something maybe about your own life. Just the experience of watching it. Quaron wrote and directed this movie and shot it. Uh, there's a man who likes to take the reins in his art. <laughs> he originally wasn't going to shoot this. I don't know what ended up happening with his uh, regular DP, but um, something had, uh, I think another project came up and, and uh, they they had chatted so much during the development of this that I feel by the time this rolled around that Cuarón felt uh, comfortable enough to shoot it himself. I think he's pretty astute with the camera and uh, was okay with that. But that uh, was Emmanuel Lubeski, I believe, who he had been uh, talking with about it. 
He apparently wrote the film and the character uh, based on the experiences, as you said, of his youth. Also, the the main character of Cleo was based on his nanny as a child, Libo Rodriguez. Uh, in this case, Cleo is played by Yalitza Aparicio. She's fantastic. She is just wonderful in it. It's her first film. She is uh, an indigenous actor in Mexico who uh, really he found through casting. He didn't he wasn't worried about casting an actor to play the role. He wanted the right person to play the role. And uh, but obviously somebody that would be able to actually act and uh, and came across Yalitza in in the auditions. And it was her first film. And she just really embodied everything with this character. Just a beautiful portrayal and very touching, very uh, simple. But I think there's so much going on with her. It was just really kind of mesmerizing to watch and spend time with her through the duration. Uh, she is uh, paired up often with uh, Senora Sofia Marina de Tavira, right? Who is a a, a, a an actress from Mexico who uh, also has had a number of uh, performances that uh, that I think that she is known for. I think that she is a strong actress. I'm trying to think what else I have seen her in. I feel like. Um, uh, I don't know. I feel like I've seen her in something, but I don't know what she it looks was. So I, familiar to me. Yeah, she really does. So I don't know. I, I feel like there had to have been something that I've seen her in, but looking through her credits, I don't. I don't know what that would be. What I think was interesting about Marina is that she said this was actually the hardest film she had ever done, and that was because the way that Quaron chose to work with his actors, allowing them to just kind of be a little more flexible with the script. And as he told the kids, like, hey, you, you know, you're a little clumsy and you're you're tired of eating this, so you're probably going to drop your fork. And then telling the other kid, hey, you're you're tired of your, your sibling's clumsiness, so if they drop the fork, you're going to start fighting with them and, about it. And Marina was trying to deliver the scene, but then all of a sudden all this stuff was happening, and then she had to kind of act around that. And she said it was just so challenging because you're trying to live this real-life situation with these fighting kids about this thing, but then also find a way to navigate back to the script and it was a big challenge but it just i think it lends a lot of authenticity and i think she does a really good job as the character that you are always kind of not always well always i think until toward the end of the film you're kind of getting a peripheral story with her yeah which i think is really interesting because it does carry a lot of weight as you see these moments like as you're following Cleo and the doctor as they come up on Marina or Sophia, the mother, as she's talking to this other doctor who is her husband's friend, Antonio's friend. And you just get this snippet of the conversation. She wipes her eyes and then she's back focusing on Cleo. It's just like it's really subtle, but I just love the way that that, all that plays out. with her. They build an incredible story for her in clues like you sort of Sherlock Holmes your way through until you get to that dinner uh, on the beach where she comes clean to the kids saying, you know, when you get home, your father will have been there and he's taking all the stuff he says are his. And so it says is his. And so you're going to have to just kind of adjust and we're going to figure that out and we're going to figure it out together. And that is like an an incredible uh, sort of caption on the whole movie that suddenly makes more sense. She has another real high point scene for me where she's where where her son is listening through the door and she's having a conversation about her husband and about how he just left. And then she comes out and she hits him and she yells at Cleo. And there's just this eruption of frenetic energy and and so many things that you have to pay attention to at once in her experience of that room at that time that feels so much. I mean, it's it's it it is such a perfect reflection on what it means to be a parent in a time of stress and anxiety and pressure. And I thought she she was just a uh, banner bearer of of how hard it is sometimes to to run a family. It was very uh, well portrayed, and, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of layers to what she's yeah. doing. A lot more than it may seem on the surface. I think that she, um, you know, she did it. She did a really good job in there. This was the first feature of Jorge Antonio Guerrero, uh, our Feramin. The jerk. I mean, yes, he was quite the jerk. And I just I think that we only get a few scenes with him. Um, one. We <laughs> do have explicit. the one. <laughs> yes, there's a rather explicit one. But it, it, he's a really interesting character. And what I loved about everything with this character is how 
it just it goes down this really dark road like he seems nice at the beginning he's a really fascinating character because of that whole opening that we have with him but then as the story progresses and he seems like uh, okay with her being pregnant when they're talking about it in the theater but then he kind of leaves and you're like okay did he just bail on her and then it just kind of keeps going you have those last two scenes where she tracks him down and then the last one where he um uh, uh, you know, holds the gun up at her. It's just like some, just some amazing, amazing stuff. Really is. I I wanted to talk just once, uh, one brief moment about uh the professor. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Professor Zovek, who shows up at the paramilitary thing, and he's teaches he's teaching all of the future soldiers uh, new moves, new ways to mindfully organize and fight and uh that the the longest sequence that we have of him is where he's leading the group on standing on one leg with their arms over their heads uh and their eyes closed and talks about how hard that really is (laughs) and i think that this is such a powerful moment because uh over the course of this bit we see a lot of people who are falling over struggling to do this, that he's right, it is hard to do, but the one who's standing tallest is Cleo, who's standing in yeah. the back, and she's doing it exactly as directed to do. And I, I'm i not entirely sure what that represents for me right now, but there is something powerful about that parallel. There was, and that's something that I love about this film that um, makes me want to continue spending time with it and exploring it is there are so many little moments like that moment that we have with <laughs> Professor Zovek, played by Latin, Latin lover, lover, luchador, <laughs> let's just say. Uh, but moments like that, or there's a moment where um, at the New Year's party in the country estate where they're having like her, she gets bumped into her her cup falls on the ground and shatters and there's a moment where she just like stares at the floor at the spill and like there's a hole in the floor and just like the way that he crafts the story and the way that he chooses to linger on those moments it allows for a lot of reason to come back and revisit the film just to think about those things like what what is he saying by having cleo balance as well as uh the the uh professor is there you know is, is there something that he's saying there? i just i find that really interesting and something that's uh worth uh continuing to explore now well, the reason we're here is talking about obviously the uh, best picture oscar but this one had just a couple of other nominations and wins so we'd like to start that and we'll come back tomorrow and do something else just a few. 252 wins, 210 other nominations. Woo, yes. That's extraordinary. Now, just to be fair to something like The Grand Illusion at the beginning of this series, <laughs> there's a very big difference from that period of time as far as awards and what was being given out to now. Yeah. Now there are countless awards. and But we're going to go through all of them right now. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, no, we're going to start with, let's, we're just going to do a few. The Oscars, obviously, that's why we're here. Best Picture, this was a foreign language film that was nominated for Best Picture. This was a year with eight nominated films. Uh, the other nominated films were Star is Born, Black Klansman, Black Panther, Bohemian Rhapsody, Green Book, Roma, The Favorite, and Vice. Green Book won. We've <laughs> talked about that on the film board. What are your thoughts here? Not Green Book. <laughs> Not Green Book. And in fact, I am, you know, I would have taken any one of the other nominees uh, to to Green Book. Uh, I certainly could have seen this winning over Green Book. Um, in, in terms of uh, cultural weight, uh, there's real room for me to see something like Black Panther uh, win on its grounds. But of course, some of that is hindsight and the loss of Chadwick Boseman. A Star of Born is Born was exceptional. Black Klansman was exceptional. I, I think if I have to, you know, I don't know if you if you're forcing me like walk the plank, I probably would have put Black Klansman up uh, over everything over my whole sort of experience. Although Roma feels like most to me like the best picture winner in terms of just status and art. Well, I feel like A Star is Born for me would say that like it feels like that has the status it has names it has, Mm -hmm. you know, 
tears in the end. Like there's a lot going on in that film that I think yeah. um, warranted, warranted its nomination. But Black Klansman, I equally agree. That's a very powerful film. I think Spike Lee did an amazing job with that. Um, uh, the favorite also, I think, is spectacular. I I am torn between Stars Born, Black Klansman, Roma, and The Favorite. On my last watch, I wouldn't have said that about Roma, but on this watch, I absolutely would. It's way up there. Yeah. Um, just plowing through, actress Yalitza Alparicio was nominated for Best Actress, but lost to Olivia Colman in The Favorite. Also, Glenn Close, Lady Gaga, and Melissa McCarthy lost for theirs. That's a hard one for me. Olivia Coleman was really great in The Favorite. Supporting actress Marina de Tavira, she was nominated. Uh, she lost to Regina King in If Beale Street Could Talk. Amy Adams, Emma Stone, and Rachel Weisz also lost. Uh, that's another tough one. Regina King was really spectacular in If Beale Street Could Talk. That, that one is not as hard for me uh, on yeah. If Beale Street Could Talk. That's That, yeah. to me, was the winner. Cuaron did win Best Director. He also won Best Cinematography for this film. Production design lost to Black Panther. Sound mixing and sound editing both lost to Bohemian Rhapsody. And uh, this is the film it did win Best Foreign Language Film. It did beat out Capernaum, Cold War, Never Look Away, and Shoplifters. Before coming into this, I would have said Shoplifters or Never Look Away, absolutely. Now I'm like, Roma, Never Look Away, and Shoplifters. Those are three really, really spectacular films. I. Uh, I would. Ha- I'm glad I didn't have to vote because it would have been very difficult to pick between the three. Okay, but, but walk this the one plank. Did win. This was the one for you. <sighs> you know, come on. I you feel chicken. like I would say shoplifters. I think I would still say shoplifters. But uh, yeah, I'd, I'd say shoplifters if I had to pick. If I, if I had to walk up the plank, that's what I'd pick. I. I can't. Like I. That's the only other one that I've seen is shoplifters, and for me, it's shoplifters. Um, Watch never look away. It is truly spectacular. Okay. <sighs> Man, all right. Uh, over at the Ariel Awards, which are the Mexican Academy Awards, it did win the Golden Ariel, which is Best Picture. The Silver Ariels are the rest of the uh, awards, and it was it won for Best Supporting Actress, uh, Marina de Tavira, Best Director, Best Art Direction, Best Editing, Best Special Effects, Best Visual Effects, Best Cinematography, Best Original Screenplay, Best Sound. Lots of awards. It was nominated but lost uh, for Best Actress, Best Supporting Actor, uh, Fermin. He was nominated Best Breakthrough Actress. Uh, that was Nancy Garcia, who played Adela, and Best Costume Design and Best Makeup. So it had all in all 17 awards uh, nominations at the Ariel Awards, which is uh, pretty spectacular. Did all this add up for anything at the box office? Recognizing, of course, we didn't have much of a box office. Cuaron's autobiographical black and white film cost $15 million to make, which is about $15.3 million in today's dollars. It's only a couple years ago, after all. This is, Pete, as you're uh, alluding to, where we really start seeing some strange things happening to the budget breakdown, because this is where Netflix comes into the picture. The movie premiered on Netflix and really only had a theatrical release so they could get it into festivals. It premiered at the Venice Film Festival uh, August 30th, 2018, before its limited theatrical run, which started November 21st, 2018, which was negligible because Netflix only did it for the Oscars. They started streaming the film digitally December 14th and the film was watched by 3.2 million households leading up to the Oscars late February. Netflix uh, spent somewhere between 25 to 50 million promoting the campaign, making it the biggest in their history. The film still went on to earn about 4 million domestically, 1.1 internationally, or about 5.1 million adjusted gross. Technically, that gives the film an adjusted loss per finished minute of 75,000, but... With Netflix's mysterious tracking, we will likely never know how profitable the film was, if it was. I'm glad we got this on the list. Uh, finally, Andy, it felt like uh, felt like this was a this was a notable miss since 2018. It's a kind of a strange excuse to get this in here, but uh, more Quaron is good Quaron. Always, yeah. always the case. I'm glad to have talked about it. I'm glad to have rewatched it, and I'm glad to now consider it uh, one of my favorites of his work. Let's take it to the mat. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. You'll see all the movies we've talked about on this very show. If you swipe over in your podcast app, you can tap the word flickchart, and it will take you straight to Roma in the flickchart database, where you can add it to your list and see how it stacks up against ours. First up, we have Roma or the Birdcage. Roma. Roma, please. Roma or do the right thing. Oh, well, that's a that's a weird one to hit right now. <laughs> I will say Roma. <sighs> weird. Uh, I, okay. Yeah, I could go either way, but I'm still going to say Roma. All right. I'll say Roma. 
but with a side eye. Uh huh. I hear you. I'm there too. Roma or up in the air? Oh, Roma. I'll say up in the air. Really? Yeah. I'm going to use that as an opportunity to change my vote. <laughs> up in the air. I thought I was. I thought I had to vote for Roma, but no, I don't. No, you don't. Up you in don't the air. Have to. That's right. Relief. Roma or the Exorcist? Um, Roma. Exorcist. Yeah, I'm going to do it. We're going to do it. We're going to do our thing. But now. it's the Exorcist. Yeah, I know. Okay, it's fine. Oh, all right. All right, here we go. All right. One, One two, two, three. three. Paper. Oh, my oh. God. Okay. <laughs> the Exorcist uh. wins. Roma or the producers? This is the 1968 original. Roma. The producers. Okay. The producers. <laughs> Such a chicken. <laughs> I know. That's great. Roma or Zero Dark Thirty? Oh. Zero Dark Thirty. Zero Dark Thirty. Roma or Le True? The Hole, one of our French crime films. I'll say Roma. Yeah, Roma. Roma or The Social Network? That's an easy one. The Social Network. Social Network. Roma or Shaun of the Dead? <laughs> Shaun of also the Dead. An easy one. Shaun yeah. of the Dead. That puts Roma in spot 113 on our chart. 113 out of 469 films. That's, That's pretty about good. About 76%. That is pretty good. What's it, how did it end up on your uh, your personal chart? Is it number one? It didn't end up at number one, no. Uh, it did pretty well for itself, though. It ended up in spot 679 out of 4463, which is about an 85%. So a little higher than ours. It's funny, but it's just it's another movie that really showcases how what kind of poor shape my flick chart is in. I don't know why we even talk about <laughs> it anymore <laughs> because it's such I'm such a basket case. It did come out at 137 uh, on my list out of 1466, which um, is a 91 percent. Uh, it should be, according to the algorithm over at letterbox.com slash the next reel, it should be a four and a half star film, which I think is just a smidge low for my letterbox ranking. I'm going to give it the full five. I also am giving it the full five. I'm not sticking with the 85%. This is a, it really was just a magnificent experience. So absolute five star film for me and a heart, big old heart, big old juicy heart. All right. Well, that concludes Roma. And, as you said, the penultimate film of our very long epic series. How are we going to wrap this up? Oh, Pete. Mm -hmm. 2019, we're going to be looking at Bong Joon-ho's film Parasite, which is going to be an exciting one to talk about. We did a Bong Joon-ho series. Uh, we're getting him back in the series with this particular film. And, uh, you know, it, it might have changed a few things in the in the Oscars when it won. So we shall uh, have a good conversation about that next week. I can't wait when the movie ends. Our conversation begins. Amazon giveth, Andrew. As Amazon always doeth. Yeah, they do. I think I've got a little. I've got a little bit of an addiction to the kids right now. I'm on a. I'm on you a do. kid bender. I don't think you should go around saying that to people. I'm addicted <laughs> to the kids right now. <laughs> you made it worse. You're the one, You're the who, one made who made it worse. It. No, you made it I'm worse. I'm just telling you. Nope. what other people are going to hear. This is all you. You made it. Now people are going to hear because you made it worse. Ugh. Yes. Okay, well, I have one from the kids. Uh, you went to Amazon. You want to go first? I'll go first. All right. So I've got a one star from Terry MNY, who had this to say over on Amazon. Painful to watch. This movie was so boring. I can't even say. <laughs> Everyone talks about the cinematography. Well, in my opinion, who the hell cares about cinematography in a film that also needs an interesting story and good acting? A total snooze fest. Dramatic retelling of a tough review. There, there it is. There it is. Okay. Uh, here's, here's one. This is a 12-year-old. Oh, okay. Who gives it three stars. Overrated. Slow international indie is fine. Mm, so that's where we start. 
Capturing the life of a Mexican maid impregnated by a violent martial arts master, this Netflix original mixes elements of realism with the family dramatic styling of Juno and Boyhood. Like two different movies, Roma begins with an hour-long plotless dull exposition, but concludes with an hour of heart-wrenching perspective. Uniquely simple, though not original. If that's a 12-year-old, I'll eat my hat. Well, that, that opening sentence, though, that was a great, that was a great way to view the story. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Amazon. <laughs> I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, Go to thenextreel.com slash transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today. <laughs> 